Hello, Tom. Welcome to ATC Office Hours. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Micah. We are going to talk some turf grass ecology and talk about lawns. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Tom Cook was the longtime turf grass, uh, head of the turf grass program at Oregon State University, and he was my professor. He taught me uh, many turf grass classes when, when I was a student at Oregon State in the 1990s. And uh, I'm just thrilled to talk with Tom today because he uh, has, he studies lawns in a very interesting way. I think a very practical way. He often will tell me that he's been looking at, at a particular lawn from the time it was planted uh, year after year after year and seeing what's growing and seeing what's uh, what happens. So I'm going to let Tom do most of the talking, um, but um, <laughs> you do do that. Don't, don't you, Tom, you, you look at lawns over time. I do. I've been doing it for a long time. And uh, you know, it's, it's interesting when I first got involved with uh, turf management, I liked the idea because it, I considered it to be a, a real finite science. You had X number of grasses, X number of weeds, X number of fertilizers, so on and so forth. And and um, I sort of bought into the party line that if you were in Spokane, Washington, you'd plant Kentucky bluegrass and it would stay there and everything was wonderful. Um, and that was also at the time when the you know breeding advances began. So we had ryegrasses, bluegrass, uh, fine fescues, and then tall fescue. And it seemed like it was just all about these grasses. But as time went by, I, I noticed consistently that in my walks and and uh, looking at lawns, that, that what I was seeing wasn't what we were planting. And so I began paying really close attention to uh, lawns as they passed over time. And uh, in doing that, I, you know, it kind of, stumbled onto this whole another world of uh, the changes that occur. So uh, yeah, it, it's, it's fun to think of lawns as an ecosystem as opposed to a crop. And, uh, and in doing that, it, it, I've learned an awful lot about uh, what transpires as time goes by. Wow. So the, it's typical to plant, is it typical to plant lawns with ryegrass in say in Portland or Seattle? Well, it has been for a long time, and that's still really popular. Uh, but uh, more recently, people have been trying to plant tall fescue. Uh, the assumption is that it's dry here in the summer, and tall fescue has deep roots and it's drought tolerant, so it must be a perfect grass. But what I'm seeing is that it fails just like ryegrass failed, just like Kentucky bluegrass failed, and even the fine fescues eventually fail. So, um, it's, uh, I, I encourage people to consider other options, but uh, nobody uh, seems to look in that direction much. So, so. what? So what's happening then? If, if, um, oh, I'll use an example. Uh, the Oregon State Turf Club. Uh, when I was a uh, undergraduate, we did some fundraising projects uh, of various sorts to um, to get money to go to the golf industry show. Mm -hmm. And I remember my aunt's lawn in Salem was in terrible condition and she paid us to go 
renovate it and we we I forget all that we did, but I know that we took away the existing grass and we seeded it with ryegrass. And what would you expect to happen to a lawn? Because it's not ryegrass now, but what, what happens from the time that you seed ryegrass in Salem, for example, in a lawn that's irrigated versus a lawn that's not irrigated? Well, I've got a little slideshow that uh, kind of illustrates this stuff, and and I think I can. Oh, kinda, cool! Okay. Uh, you know, if, you'll, let, if we can get this thing up and running, then away we go. Okay, let me try to bring this up. And. Do I need to I, click on it on my side? I think. Yeah, you you want to bring up your PowerPoint window. Okay. There you go. Okay. And so you can you can you can show us and explain to us what happens here. Okay. So I I call this lawn ecology and it and we'll start uh, basically by looking at the you know the the classic map of the United States which shows the various regions. And uh, of course if you're from the northeast and midwest you think about the cool humid region when you move into the west, you get into the cool arid or semi-arid region. And then what I call the Pacific coastal region. And uh, so if you look closer uh, from the United States down to Oregon, uh, we can produce a map that looks something like this. And uh, the yellow line is a dividing point. Uh, and basically it runs along the crest of the Cascade Mountains. Until you get down in the Siskiyous and it sort of loops around uh, Medford and then further south, and it goes down California right on the coast for the most part. And then up on the Columbia River there uh, at the top of the screen, uh, there's sort of a, a V-shaped indentation, and that's where the Columbia Gorge is. And where the point comes, that's right between Hood River and the Dalles. So pretty much the heavily populated parts of the state would be uh, from the coast uh, to the Cascades. So along the coast, we've got, you know, the typical coastal climate, and then we've got the coast range, and then you can see the green area there, which is the Willamette Valley. So we're right in the center of the valley, and Portland's at the top, and then uh, Eugene would be at the bottom. And uh, so that's this, this Pacific coastal region that I'm talking about, and that's where most of my work is done. And this sort of gives you a sense of, of, of basically how different uh, things are in our Pacific coastal region. So the red line shows that uh, we get a lot of rain in the winter and it tapers off to, uh, or you get into um, you know, early May and then uh, from June, July and August and part of September are very dry and then the rains start again in the fall. Whereas in the Midwest or the Northeast, you have a summer rainfall pattern where most of your precipitation occurs during the summer months. And of course, in the winter, uh, you've got snow, which we don't normally have. And then the yellow line shows um, what it's like in the uh, east side of the Cascade Mountains, where it's basically just dry all the time, uh, even in the winter when it does snow. So, uh, so we have some functional differences between the Pacific Northwest and other parts of the country. So what I've concluded is, is, as I've looked at lawns for many years, is that basically all lawns transition from the planted grasses to a situation-specific climax vegetation. 
and that's generally not going to be the grass you planted. So this is that example that I was telling you about in Seattle. I stumbled across this lawn in 2006. It was a brand new perennial ryegrass sod lawn on a newly renovated landscape. So then I've gone back year after year after year to take photos. And um, so uh, if we look at the spring of 2007, you can see what looks like a perfect stand, 100% pure stand of perennial ryegrass. This was, um, this was sodded? I believe it was sodded, yes. Okay. And I didn't see it when it actually went in, but looking at it, 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 it has the look and feel of a sodded lawn. Uh, I, I probably saw it a year after it was planted. Um, yeah, and so it was well-maintained. As a, you know, I would say that new cars are shiny, and people, as you know, you buy a new car, you wash it a lot the first year, and then uh, somewhere along the line, you, you sort of give up on it. And that's pretty much what we can see with this yard. So this is 2007. If we jump forward to 2010, suddenly well, it starts to look a little different. A little, yeah. Uh, a little different, yeah. You've got a, uh, I think I've got a close-up there, yeah. So you can see you still got a lot of ryegrass in there, but uh, it's loaded with dandelions, and that would be both the common dandelion and false dandelion. And something has changed uh, that's allowed the encroachment of those uh, broadleaf components. So... Then we moved to 2015, and, and now if you look at it, you can see in this, in this picture, there's, there's of course, the, the broadleaf components with the dandelions and such, but you'll also see what looks like spots of different grasses. And most of those are various bent grasses. So we typically see creeping bent grass and highland-type bent grasses, what we call dryland bent grass, both of which have uh, the ability to spread um, over time, uh, vegetatively. And uh, the dryland bent grass is, of course, rhizomatous, which makes it very hardy, even though it's quick to turn brown under drought. So that's in 2015. So now we're, we're 10 years into the lawn, and it's changing uh, quite a bit. And then we go to 2017. And, um, you know, for years, the municipalities have encouraged people not to water their lawns. And, and of course, you get into a city like Seattle, that's very important. Uh, can't use a lot of water. And so most people just quit. And as a result, you know, you start to see this. And one of the things that happens with ryegrass is that it's, it's very drought tolerant up to a point, but uh, it doesn't survive dormancy for a long period of time. And so it uh, starts to clump out or thin out over time. And then the, the drought tolerant uh, broadleaf weeds come in. So this is in the fall of 2017 after the the rains had come and you can see there's some green areas in there and if you look closer those are all bent grass and then some of the white grass in there might very well be uh, rat tail fescue and we'll talk about that in a little bit so you can see this transition let's say we're just we're about 12 years into this lawn and it, this is what it looks like and and at this point it's what so it's it's gone 100% ryegrass to to it's, what then? Well, you probably got, uh, if you struggle to find 5% ryegrass in this stand, and then you've got predominantly bent grass. There's some velvet grass in there. Uh, haven't seen a lot of potrivialis and no annual bluegrass. Um, and, um, and then you've got a, a large percentage of um, 
everything from clover to a common dandelion to false dandelion. And um, so that's where you're at with, with in this case, you know, roughly 15 years from planting. And that's typical. That's that's kind of standard operating procedure for any kind of lawn that's planted in the in the uh, western part of the states. And where so, can can I ask where that bent grass came from? Did did birds? Oh, uh, I mean, was it in the soil? <laughs> did birds drop it? Did it come in the irrigation water? Um, yeah, did it blow by the wind? Uh, all of the above, probably. Uh, you know, bent grass has naturalized throughout the western parts of the Northwest. And uh, there's an awful lot of lawns in the area that don't get mowed, so they actually do go to seed. The seed is small, so it can move with the wind. Uh, your neighbor's cat walks over it or dog can, can catch a few seeds. Um, and all of these grasses in this slide that I'm showing now, bent grass, rough bluegrass, uh, annual bluegrass, velvet grass, um, they all form what we call persistent uh, seed banks in the soil. And so there's a ready supply of these things in the soil to begin with. So short of physically removing all the soil and bringing in a clean fill that has no seed in it, um, these are already there. So it's a combination, I think, of a number of different things. And then as you learned when you redid your uh, ant's lawn, uh, if you never get all the grass, even though you try to. So some of it comes back pretty quick that way. So anyway, this, this slide shows kind of the, the, the range of grasses and other plants that we see. And of course, you, you're always going to have some of the planted grasses. You're going to have um, lots of different mosses. I think I've counted at least a dozen different moss species that we find in lawns. And of course, it's a winter, a winter growing plant for us. And then all these eudicots, uh, these broadleaf plants, uh, there's a, a kind of a a standard core of plants you see there. Um, I did want to talk about one grass in particular. That's the Vulpia myuros or the rat tail fescue. And uh, it is a true winter annual, which matches our climate perfectly. Um, you can see on the left uh, that it germinates in the fall when the rains come. And it looks just like any other fine fescue at that stage. And uh, you can fertilize it, you can mow it. It looks actually very nice through the winter. And then it flowers in, in May and June, and then it just dies. So you can see up in the upper right-hand picture, uh, that's, that's not annual bluegrass, that is rat tail fescue after it has reached, uh, completed its life cycle and produced seed that will then supply the stand for next year. This has become an increasingly common component of non-irrigated lawns and since people have been encouraged to not water their lawns for long periods of time, uh, you know, years now, we're seeing a dramatic increase in the amount of vulpia that, uh, particularly in parking strips, but also throughout uh, entire lawns. Wow. Yeah, I remember you taught me about that grass, but I never saw it in big, uh, large st stands like that. It was always uh, present, but, but here and there. Yeah, it is really... Uh, it's, it's increased dramatically just in the last 15 years. And um, it's it's a shame in some respects, we can't just use it as a winter overseeding grass, but of course it's not part of the seed trade. Um, so to answer your other question earlier, I, you know, you, you either got 
contaminated seed or sod, most home lawns are not planted with uh, elite varieties of grass. They go to, you know, the local store like uh, Bymart or whatever, and they buy often the cheapest bag that's on the shelf. And that's often dirtier than a nice, clean, professional-grade uh, seed mix would be. So some of our stuff, you know, some of these off-type uh, plants come in that. But the seed bank is, is a really uh, big part of that. And uh, ironically, uh, your, your longest lived seed banks are from the plant grasses that produce the smallest seed. So that's why there's one reason there's so much bent grass to be found. And then just a quick thought on the, on the broadleaf components. You know, we, we've always treated weeds as something to get rid of, but the reality is, is they're part of this ecosystem that ultimately evolves. And, they all have special characteristics. So like English daisy grows really well from the winter uh, into the spring, and then it simply goes dormant in the summer. So it can tolerate the longest, hottest, driest summers and then look gorgeous in the fall. Uh, white clover, of course, comes into poorly uh, fertilized lawns, uh, nitrogen deficient lawns, and it's got pretty good drought resistance during the summer. Uh, and it, so, but it sort of comes and goes over time. Uh, then you've got mouse ear chickweed and black medic, and both of those are, are fall germinating species, which, which tend to germinate with the onset of fall rains. Uh, you can also add to that the uh, subterranean clover, which is uh, a real common component in uh, low input lawns. And then you've got false dandelion and common dandelion, which simply withstand drought uh, through uh, deep tap roots and so on. And, and uh, they are definitely a stress tolerator. So these are really well adapted to the way lawns are actually maintained here uh, in the Northwest. So I got some rules I've come up with. And uh, one of them is that competition occurs in the cool months. And I think all of our uh, standard recommendations have missed that point because we select tall fescue because it's heat and drought tolerant, but that's only two to three months in the summer. And the real competition occurs from September uh, through May. And uh, so the grasses that can uh, perform well under those circumstances uh, are one the ones that are gonna dominate uh, eventually. And then the other one is, is that the maintenance intensity determines what I call the succession endpoint. And when I'm saying maintenance usually involves around a nitrogen fertility, uh, irrigation intensity, and then whether or not you use herbicides. Uh, most people do not use herbicides, and so that reflects in this uh, broad array of uh, uticot plants that we find in lawns. So I've got a, a little flowchart here that shows what happens to perennial ryegrass. And basically, if you start with the low end side where the green squares are, um, what you're going to find is that the low nitrogen responsive plants tend to dominate. So that'll be things like bentgrass, moss, clover, um, and then a host of other uh, plants that, that tolerate low fertility uh, and, again, grow during those cool parts of the year. On the other hand, if you manage it intensively with higher nitrogen and then you irrigate, then the grasses that are going to dominate are going to be the ones that are most responsive. And that typically results in annual bluegrass as a dominant grass. But, of course, bentgrass, which is very tolerant of low fertility can also thrive under high fertility. So we often have a mix of annual bluegrass and bentgrass in uh, highly 
maintain perennial ryegrass lawns. So again, this sort of summarizes what I've seen for years. Uh, you start out with a young stand, a few spots here and there. Three years down the road, they start to get bigger. Five years, they start to coalesce. You know, and, and anywhere from six to 10 to 20 years, they pretty much become a complete stand of, of various bent grasses. And, and these are always a mix. Uh, you're generally gonna find uh, mostly creeping bent grass and uh, dryland bent grass. And then occasionally you'll find some true colonial that crosses capillaris, but it's never been as widely planted in the Northwest as the highland types have been. This is, this is fascinating. So I'm going to, I'm going to come back to a lot of this because eventually uh, I want to talk a little bit about golf and uh, not yeah. right now, but why, why on golf courses we start with bent grass and it transitions to something else. But so for lawns, you're saying the climax species uh, with low N is uh, typically going to be um, bent grass. And with high N, it's poa annua, but you can also have quite a bit of bent grass in there. Yes, that's exactly what happens. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting that we, uh, we like to see gardens and um, so we go on a lot of garden tours uh, in the northwest from Seattle to um, Portland or wherever and it's pretty fascinating uh, you'll see lawns that have been maintained intensively for 40 50 years and they're almost completely annual bluegrass and then you'll see lawns that have, are new and they'll they'll have generally start out with polka dots and lots of things coming in so it's just a matter of time uh, but that combination of nitrogen fertility and uh, the amount of water that's applied really seems to influence just how uh, how rapidly the transition occurs and then which direction it goes. That now, what? So we were talking about what happens west of the Cascade Mountains, weren't yes. we? Yes. Uh, and we're talking so if we're Spokane. <laughs> yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about Spokane or Pendleton or uh, Boise yeah. or Bend. Okay. Uh, well, I've I've looked in these areas too, and so typically when I go to these areas, I I, I go to the older parts of town, and uh, and then I try to correlate that with what might have been planted back in the day and so forth. So in 1954. Uh, Oregon State University had a publication on planting lawns and a standard recommendation, whether you were on the east side of the Cascades or the west side, uh, was to uh, have a mixture of bluegrass and fine fescue and um, some bent grass. And the typical bent grass they recommended was highland bent grass. So if I go to Spokane up in the Manitou area, which is the older part of town, uh, what I find there is uh, I can find old lawns that are close to 100% bent grass. So the question is, did that happen naturally or were they actually planted? And uh, my guess is that in most cases they were planted that way because you don't have conditions for a, a natural seed bank of uh, these plants in, the, in those climates. It's too dry in the summer for a natural stand to survive that way. So I suspect a lot of those old lawns were actually planted. 
Um, so, uh, for example, if you go to Pendleton, Oregon, which is up along the Columbia River in the hottest, driest portions of the state, and you go to Fireman's Park, it's virtually 100% bent grass with other components. But it, you would look at it and say, this is a bent grass lawn. Um, if I go to Spokane, I see the same thing in, in, in the older parts of town. And But on the other hand, if you start with a clean site in those environments and you plant uh, Kentucky bluegrass, tall fescue, perennial ryegrass even, uh, it's possible to keep those pure for a very long period of time because you don't have the natural influx of, um, of these other grasses. Now, an interesting thing I've seen in Bend is that uh, it's not unusual for lawns in Bend to have been planted with sod grown in the Willamette Valley. And they do have their own sod farmers over there and they do a great job. But occasionally, for whatever reason, they'll bring in sod from the west side of the mountains. When that happens, um, you often bring bent grass with you. And uh, it's even though you don't see it as you plant the sod, it's there. And then eventually you've got these patches. So kind of one of my concluding thoughts is that when bent grass is present, it will eventually dominate. And uh, part of that is that it has that tolerance to low fertility and it has the ability to spread vegetatively. And, um, you know, whereas Kentucky bluegrass, for example, is kind of a reluctant grower. To make it grow and stay green, you got to fertilize it. And the reality is, is an awful lot of people do not fertilize much. Uh, they start out doing that, but then they you know, lose, lose their heart after a while. And so most of our lawns are actually operating under low fertility environments. And so under those conditions, then, you know, go to Manitou Park, for example, you'll find lots of bent grass there because the bluegrass is, is uh, not growing vigorously. But if you started clean and, and worked at it, you could have a very pure lawn for a long time in those in those climates. Can we can we talk a little bit about your lawn in in Corvallis? Yeah. yeah. So um, we moved into our house in 1984. The, the house was built in 1959, so I'm assuming the lawn was planted probably around 1960. In the front yard, they actually imported some soil, or so it appears. And so I'm guessing that that lawn was planted with a mixture that contained highland bentgrass because uh, today it is probably 90% uh, uh, highland type bentgrasses. Uh, there's also some poetrivialis there in the shady areas uh, near the trees and close to the house. There's some annual bluegrass. Um, and then I can find a smattering of Kentucky bluegrass. I can find, uh, had, used to have a few clumps of tall fescue, and I can even find some of the fine fescues. But by far and away, it is, is, is you know, 90% of that grass uh, during the summer months is bent grass. And, that's in uh, your front, front lawn. That's in the front lawn, yeah. And so about almost 20 years ago now, I decided that um, I was going to see if I could make it work the way I wanted to. And I dethatched it severely and overseeded it with Fressa strawberry clover. So I didn't get rid of the grass. I just opened it up so I could get a catch. And I got a pretty darn good stand. And uh, so over these last 20 years, I, I've only, I haven't fertilized the lawn once. 20, I, 
20 years, zero fertilizer. Yeah, and I do return clippings. And, um, but, uh, and, the, and what I tend to see is that the clover, uh, I, I do overseed with clover periodically because the stands don't stay constant. They're not like grass, they, they kind of come and go. The fresa has stayed pretty strong in about half the lawn, but in another portion, it's more severely drought stressed. It, it, it hasn't uh, held up. So I overseed in the fall and um, with the clover about every other year, and I just sprinkle it on the top. I don't do any prep whatsoever. I let the fall rains bring it up. But what I see happening is that um, in the early fall, I, I think what happens is the nodules associated with the clover, and it, it nodulates very nicely, um, even though I don't always uh, use uh, inoculated seed. Um, they either die off or disintegrate or whatever, but I actually get a flush of nitrogen in the fall. So the quality of the turf is extraordinary in the fall and then again in the spring. And um, so then the other angle on that is my goal was to figure out how could I maintain this and have it look green, but not irrigate any more than absolutely necessary. And so I've taken a a deep and infrequent approach. And my goal would be to irrigate about four times a year. And then that varies with the year. So I've been able to get by with as little as three. And in a really dry year, I've had to go up as six. And um, and then occasionally I get lucky and there's a, a rainstorm that comes at a critical time. And so the goal is not to have a lush green lawn, but to have a lawn that's more green than brown. And so as I look in the neighborhood, it stands out even in the summer as a green lawn compared to others that aren't irrigated and so forth. With with three or four irrigations per year, which... Yeah, I, I, I would say to be to be really, you know, honest, it'd probably be run four to five irrigations a year is more common. So but when I, is that I used to three? irrigate about 16 times a year, you know, so I've reduced my water input significantly. And so this goes uh, th three weeks or so? Like, yeah, if, let's it, say it, it stops it, raining in June, and then describe how yeah. that goes through the summer. Well, it, it, it's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, in, the, in the July to mid-August period, it's, I'm going to irrigate every two to three weeks. I can generally get two weeks, can't always get three. Early and late, I can often get four weeks. So there's no schedule per se, just a matter of, uh, you know, constantly watch it. And then when it starts to look like it's going to go dormant, I'll get water on it. Um, and then I, I typically, my strategy is wait as long as I can in the spring. And I've, I've irrigated as early as May and as late as July, just depending on how the spring went. And then I quit as early as I can in the fall. That typically is Labor Day plus or minus a week. So, uh, you know, the weather's been a little strange in recent years, but uh, still that's a pretty good target. So my rule of thumb is if it is green on Labor Day uh, and I irrigate at that time, I won't have to irrigate again. So in that case, I just wait for the fall rains and it works quite well. And when you irrigate, it's on relatively dry soil. And yep. so you must uh, irrigate uh, slow, uh, 
what what would what would we say a a low application rate of a low precipitation rate so it doesn't run off and how yeah how do you handle that and how much water do you put? Well, I I, I use hoses and sprinklers and uh, my rule of thumb is uh, you know irrigate the dry spots. So um, I have a little formula where I set up my sprinklers. You know, just like it's almost like mimicking uh, an in-ground system, but I can adjust that to the areas that tend to be drier than others. And um, so I'll typically uh, irrigate at for 90 minute sets with uh, a gear drive uh, sprinkler. Um, and as far as the actual application rate, you know, I, I'm, I'm clearly getting down at least an inch of water, but it does take a while. You know, it's just relatively low precipitation rate compared to what you would see on a fairway or uh, uh, yeah, a spray head system. And uh, uh, so, yeah, and then I, you know, I, I use a, a screwdriver uh, to test the moisture of the soil over time. And it's not a bad tool once you get it sort of mentally calibrated as to how hard it is to put the thing in. Yes, so I can't I'm... get exact numbers, but I, but I do keep track of my water usage in my garden. And uh, uh, it's remarkably constant from year to year. And my goal is always use less next year than I used the year before. So that's, um, that's cool. You sounds like you're managing your lawn, like a, a geo certified uh, facility. <laughs> like it's very sustainable, I think to uh, measure the inputs, uh, you know, so you're measuring your fertilizer inputs, which have been zero over 20 years. And you, you probably keep track of the mowing. I guess if we would ask about that, you can probably tell me how how many times you mow per year and you <laughs> certainly know how much water you're using and then you track that over time it it uh it's a great way to manage and then you get results that that your lawn is it stands out in the neighborhood well there's one other aspect too we, when we moved in in 1984 the lawn was about 80 percent false standing line because it had not been maintained at all for years. And so um, once I got it green and growing, then I treated that with good old Trimec back in the day. And I followed my own directions, which is two applications, three weeks apart. And that was in 1984. And I haven't treated it since. And I can control any weeds that come up in it uh, just with a screwdriver or a wood chisel is what I use. So, um, so I've been able to actually, you know, keep the grass dense enough, tight enough that I don't get a lot of weed encroachment, even though all the lawns around me are loaded with, with, with uh, false dandelion and common dandelion and other weeds that can easily move into the area. So, so yeah, it, it's been fun. It's, it's fun. It's, it's fun to, to watch what's growing and how it grows and when it grows. And I think uh, that's, really good insight that you have that the competition is not happening in the summer. The competition happens in the other nine months of the year when yeah. the temperatures are such that Poa annua can grow and uh, like everything can grow. And so actually in the summer when it's dry, a lot of things are, are not growing. So there's, mm -hmm. there's less competition then. Well, it's interesting if you let's say you're from another part of the country where you say you're from Minnesota, you know, um, you're frozen for the entire winter months. And that being the case, 
there really isn't any competition that occurs in the winter. So competition becomes a summer phenomena. All you want is a grass that's that's hardy enough to survive the winter, but your real uh, uh, you know competition is occurring during what we consider the growing season. But for us, it's it's just the opposite. And uh, I'll make a quick reference. And my backyard is different, and it was wide open when we when we moved in, and then we since developed an extensive garden. But my plan was to develop uh, plant trees so that I would have uh, extensive afternoon shade and then partial shade in the morning. And that has allowed me to get by in the backyard with about, and it's a very nice yard and it's part of our main garden, uh, rarely more than 10 irrigations a year. And uh, I maintain that to a higher standard. Uh, But uh, I've been able to minimize my water inputs there because I've got that shade that really makes a, a big difference until you start getting root competition. And that has to do with where you place the trees. And then I have one other strategy that I use is, is uh, I don't irrigate the parking strips and I have other areas. I have a, what I call the orchard area in the back, which you can't see from the house. So I don't water that. That's where I planted the Bermuda grass. Right. I uh, let's, Let's talk about the Bermuda grass and the zoysia grass, which is fascinating for me. But first, let's uh, let's discuss some of the comments and questions that have come up in the chat, which um, I'm I'm going to try to overlay this on the screen. But when I do that, I don't see it. So it's, well, I can see it on the side. Well, how about if I take a look at this one at the top of the list there? Yeah, uh, let's. Says yeah, the, I I was trying to show it on the screen. T- Tom and I can see it on our here. So, go ahead. Okay, Tom. so it says: Is there any value to increasing nitrogen fertility in the colder months to promote bent grass over poa? Uh, and my general answer is no, uh, because in a in a horse race uh, in the in the fall and winter. Um, if you fertilize, poa will be more vigorous, uh, poa annual will be more vigorous, and poa trivialis will be more vigorous than the bent grass will. So, um, so m- my inclination is to say no. I don't. I don't think that'll work. I think you'll you'll push it in the direction of annual bluegrass if you do that. Um, okay. Thank you. Um, let's see, Jason Jason Haynes from up in Canada, uh, in uh, the Sunshine Coast. Mm-hmm. of British Columbia said uh, he's seeing a similar transition from rye to bent. Uh, seeing, oh, here he's talking about uh, newer bent grass competing vigorously with low nitrogen throughout the winter. So that yeah. uh, matches with what you just answered. Yeah. Take advantage of the fact that your, your, your bent grass will maintain density uh, at lower fertility levels than other grasses. All right. Good. Well, thanks everybody. We we, we okay. see these in the chat. I think so this is is streaming, I believe on YouTube, Facebook and Twitter. I uh I can't see the ones from Twitter. They don't show up on the restream software that we're using. I don't see anything from Facebook yet, but I'm seeing the YouTube 
YouTube comments show up here. So we can sort of monitor it at the same time we're having the conversation. So I, I appreciate everybody who's watching this live and feel free to ask us questions. If, but Jason if made them. one more comment, which is a good one. Uh, he asked if it, if he's putting low rates of nitrogen down, like a tenth of a pound of nitrogen per thousand per month. I think at those rates, you don't have any problems. You're going to maintain healthy poa annua, and you're not going to overstimulate the poa, poa annua. So yeah, you know, it, it's funny. We used to say quit fertilizing in the fall completely. Uh, and what we've found is that we go through the winter with really weak poa annua and we go through a weak uh, bent grass. So provided your rates are not excessive and you're not actually trying to push growth, uh, you can maintain a healthy turf without uh, causing uh, this species shift. Uh, but if you, get, if you get ahead of yourself, then you're, you're going to promote poa annua. I have an interesting observation I want to share. Uh, I mentioned that these Climax lawns, which look like bent grass, and, and they pretty much are, they have other things with them. And of course, Poa trivialis is, is one of those grasses that's part of that Climax uh, group. So I, I tried an experiment years before I started uh, uh, my current program on my front lawn, and I dethatched it in the spring. and. Um, and then I really enhanced the bent grass uh, as a result, because I did fertilize after that. Then I thought, well, what would happen if I dethatched in the fall? So when you think about it, it was, it was a good illustration. I, in dethatching in the fall, I basically had thinned out the bent grass severely. And fall is the time of the year that the poa trivialis grows very vigorously, fall and winter. And so by the next May, my lawn looked like it was predominantly poa trivialis. <laughs> so I learned, I learned a lesson, you know, um, you, you don't want to upset the apple cart uh, at a time when the bent grass couldn't recover and the poa, or poa trivialis was moving into its, its uh, prime season. So I only did that one once. But we, uh, we've, talked about warm season grasses sometimes you've you've sent me pictures and said could this be seashore paspalum you found it somewhere and yes. i've found some interesting old articles from a botanist who i've forgotten the name who who uh it was something like the grasses of salem from from a yes. hundred years ago just yes. really really interesting things that you and i have studied and shared with each other and i i will always remember one of the I think it was a grass ID uh, exam. And we used to do that by walking around Corvallis and yep. you would say, okay, this is question number seven. What grass is this? And we would have to uh, write this, the, the grass. And uh, you should, the one that I got wrong was Bermuda grass because I'd never expected to see Bermuda grass growing wild in Corvallis. Yep. So you, apparently had planted some Bermuda grass in your lawn to see what would happen. Is it, I think this is in the back lawn. Yep. Not, and, and, and you also planted some zoysia, um, maybe zoysia japonica. Um, probably can you, Meyer zoysia. Yeah. Probably. Okay. So what happened with, with those? Well, first of all, I've been collecting Bermuda grass from all over the Northwest for some time. And of course, as you know, when you get up into Tri-Cities area of Washington and from basically uh, 
uh, there, clear over to uh, Legrand, a uh, lot of Bermuda grass there. So in Walla Walla, for example, you can find Bermuda grass everywhere, and it'll be growing right beside bent grass. And amazing how many different grasses you can find in one spot. Um, I found a really nice looking Bermuda grass growing in Seattle, which is the last place I thought I would see Bermuda grass. And so I've uh, collected those at home. And then I thought, well, I've got an area in the back that I don't irrigate, that little orchard area. And I should say I don't irrigate it. I might irrigate it once or twice a year. Um, and could I get Bermuda grass to grow in these spots that normally completely die out or turn dormant? So I propagated some grass and I planted a couple of clumps of that. And then I actually found a lawn in Corvallis, which was about 75% zoysia grass, perfect location. It's an irrigated lawn on a slope, south facing, uh, full sunlight. Um, and so I took samples of that and I propagated it and then I planted it in my own yard. And uh, you predicted that the Bermuda grass would do okay, the zoysia grass wouldn't. And you were absolutely correct. Um, I, I babied the zoysia grass for two years and then I let it fend for itself. And now I can't find it. Uh, right. The Bermuda so grass you, has spread significantly. And how many times did you irrigate this area? It's well, twice a in year? A, in a normal year, about twice. Yeah. I, my goal is to not have to irrigate. And um, the Bermuda grass has, has done well in the hottest, driest location. And it has spread. And so it now what started out as a clump you know, about six inches in diameter covers the space probably five feet by five feet. So it's it's is uh, spread significantly, and it perfectly compatible with all the other grasses. So. That's that's interesting. I, you know, I'm I'm interested in this topic because uh, I see people look at using zoysia in California, which I think has even less water than Oregon, and. I, I can see Bermuda grass growing wild in California in a lot of places, but I've never seen zoysia growing wild. And you have two things that happen, uh, both the temperature effect and the, the irrigation or drought stress effect, where Bermuda grass can grow better at low temperatures, I think, than zoysia, even though zoysia can retain its color a bit it's just not growing it just sits there so you need really high temperatures for zoysia to grow well and it also has the same characteristic that you mentioned with ryegrass where it can be resistant to drought for quite a while but if you have long periods without water it it doesn't survive it where bermuda grass uh, does survive it so what what you have is bermuda grass can actually compete in those kind of conditions and zoysia grass doesn't which is why you see bermuda grass growing wild in walla walla and you don't see zoysia growing wild there and uh, yeah. i think when it comes to managed conditions and intensively managed turf i think it's better to grow the grass that can grow the fastest and then cut back the water cut back the fertilizer and we can have some amazing conditions which is kind of what you've done on your front lawn is you're yeah. growing a grass that's really well adapted and you cut the fertilizer cut the water and it produces the the type of surface that you're looking for yeah it's uh you know we 
there's a tendency in the whole turf world to offer recipes. You know, do this, do that, do this, fertilize four times a year, mow a certain height. Um, and it's kind of like a, an old movie uh, I watched uh, about a uh, a guy who burned out of the of the you know business world and he became a tap dancing uh, magician. And uh, so the, one of the lines from the movie was, "Get to know your rabbit." because you had to pull a rabbit out of the hat. And I think that's what we need to do. We get, get to know your lawn and uh, understand uh, how to make it work with the least amount of input. It's, uh, it's easy to overwater, over-fertilize, and do all that. But uh, it's, it's a lot more fun to try to figure out how to get those results with, with much less input. And can we, can we transition to talk about golf courses a little bit? Sure. Because... Um, we've just talked about lawns transitioning from the planted species, which will often be ryegrass. I think tall fescue you said is more common recently, but I suppose it transitions to where, what do you end up with? Let's talk about that actually, before we talk to about okay. golf, do you, do you end up well, with clump clumpy ryegrass with bent grass invading? What do you end up with? Well, the interesting thing is, is that uh, ryegrass eventually just sort of goes away. It's still there. There's you can still find ryegrass, but it sort of intermingles with the bent grass and other components, and you just don't notice it. Tall fescue, because it's coarser textured, it's a bigger plant, uh, it tends to form clumps, and so uh, it really aesthetically isn't very attractive once the conversion happens, and um, and so it's in my opinion is is a, is a poor choice. But uh, it's popular because, you know, when you go to the store, you buy what they have to sell, and that's what people want to sell. But uh, given my druthers, I would much rather go with a ryegrass fine fescue mix, uh, knowing that it will transition comfortably, whereas uh, if I plant tall fescue, it'll be an ugly transition. And, th and that's west of the Cascades in the Pacific Coastal Yeah, if region. I was in cent Central Oregon, for example, uh, the thing I like about tall fescue there, which, and I think it's a very good grass for that area, is that uh, it doesn't get an aquatic ring spot and it doesn't produce a lot of thatch. Uh, I, I remember years ago, I, I was at, had a field day and I started talking about dethatching. And of course, nobody wants to do that. It's a lot of work and it makes a big mess. And this fellow from Central Oregon said, he swore at me and told me what a stupid thing it was because, yeah, you never get rid of thatch, you know. So I went over there to visit, and we went out and looked at lawns, and I, I began to appreciate what he was talking about. I actually have a photograph I took that shows an eight-inch depth of thatch from a Kentucky bluegrass lawn. And, uh, and of course, what that means is that somebody planted it and then never did anything to it except water it. And as a rule, people tend to overwater when they water in that climate. And uh, so it just grew a lot of thatch. And so tall fescue doesn't do that. And it has problems under snow with snow molds and such. But uh, in open areas, uh, that would be my grass of choice because I think it's easier to manage in that environment. But uh, yeah. but on our side of the hill, it, it just doesn't doesn't hold up. Excellent. I'm it's there's a lot of microclimates and uh, different uh, zones where different grasses will work and it, you definitely have to pay attention to what's happening 
with uh, how your grass is responding to the weather and how your grass is responding to the way that you're managing it. And on golf courses, what I've noticed is they get seeded. Let's talk putting greens. Putting greens tend to be grown in the, let's say in the past 30 years, uh, they would be seeded bent grass into a sand root zone. And yet when I go play golf in Western Oregon, I'm generally playing on Poa Annua greens and mm-hmm. they weren't seeded to Poa Annua. So why are lawns transitioning to bent grass? Why are putting greens transitioning away from bent grass? And um, is there anything we can do about it? Or, or <laughs> it, do we have to give up? Because I... I would say theoretically, I can think of some things that I'd like to try, but that's, mm-hmm. I'm in Bangkok right now. I'm, I'm not managing grass in the Pacific yeah. Northwest, so I can't try it. Well, um, anybody followed my work over the years knows that I, I never viewed annual bluegrass as a, as a bad grass because in reality, that's what most of us end up growing. Uh, but yeah, part of it goes back to historical. You know, think of all the great clubs in the Pacific Northwest. Most of them are very old. And so uh, as a result, they were planted many, many years ago. So they've gone through a lot of incarnations uh, over the years. And the result, of course, now is that many of those golf courses are close to 100% annual bluegrass. So you have this incredible seed bank that's built up not only around greens, but, you know, aprons, approaches, tees, everywhere. And so uh, if you were to strip off your putting green and then replant with bank grass, it would have a constant source of annual bluegrass inoculum coming into it. But let's go to a new golf course and say that you you built it uh, in a nice clean site and you built these sand-based greens and then you planted whatever bank grass you you chose. What I've observed historically is that uh, they come up and they're absolutely beautiful and as close to perfect as grass could be. And the tendency is not to do anything. You don't want to, you don't want to core, you don't want to, you don't want to do anything because they're so nice. And what happens, what I, I feel like I've observed is that on those young greens, they very rapidly build up a thatch layer in the first two to three years. And so sometimes it can be as much as two inches deep. Then you start having problems with localized dry spot, you have spongy soft greens or whatever else. And then you, at that point, you figure you've got to do something. And so what happens is people start coring a lot and then they top dress heavily to fill up the cores and pretty soon the poanio starts to come in and the transition occurs. In the old days, we would get, you know, a lot of disease activity, which would further thin out the turf. And so it was sort of a natural process. Today, we do a lot of uh, grooming. We, we, you know, some people vertidrain their grains. Uh, we continue to core and we top dress a lot. And all of that fits in that realm of what we call disturbance. So to the extent that annual bluegrass is in the area, it's going to move in. And again, it's the only grass that can germinate and mature at putting green heights. So you can overseed, interseed, do whatever you want with bent grass. And it's really difficult to get 
uh, a mature stand to develop from those seedings. You'll get a lot of seedling germination. You can always pat yourself on the back, but over time, uh, you tend not to get uh, a permanent stand of grass. So I think part of our issues with annual bluegrass are uh, irrigation, fertilization, coring, without a doubt, um, our attempts to produce perfect surfaces, which involves a lot of grooming or vertical mowing. Um, all these disturbances really lend themselves to uh, the shift towards annual bluegrass. And I don't know that I have a, a magic wand. I, I will say that the newer bed grasses, you know, it used to be that you had five to 10 years before the conversion would occur. And today you might get as close to 20 years before it occurs, but it typically occurs. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's a tough proposition because our goal with putting turf is to produce a surface. We want firm, smooth, fast surfaces. And uh, as we've lowered mowing heights and done all these other things to get the speed we want, um, we just, we work that surface more and more. And so given our good environment for annual bluegrass, it's, it's largely inevitable that that's what's going to happen. But if we uh, consider, an, uh, you, you said disruption or, or mm -hmm. disturbance, um, if we minimize disturbance, do you think bank grass persists for a longer time? Even it might be inevitable that POA invades, but the bank grass yeah. would be expected to, to I last think so. longer? Yeah, I think if you can find ways to do less surface disturbance rather than more, uh, you're going you're gonna to have a, a competitive stand longer. And I, I remember, you know, for years I did chemical research, tried to kill annual bluegrass and I'm fond of saying I was the only person that could ever actually do it, uh, but nobody else seemed to be able to. So maybe I was uh, cheating or something. But I used to define the golf course into zones. And um, you've got the putting green proper, and then you've got the aprons and approaches. And the aprons in particular, have they get all the traffic from putting green mowers. They get all the traffic from apron mowers. Um, there's a lot of things happen there. And then when you move into the approach, which that last 20 yards before you get to the green, uh, those are often uh, intensive uh, sites where you get a lot of uh, overlap with mowers. Many of them are on a slope, and so they're wet and they get compacted. And all of those areas are quick to become poa annua. And so now you've got this, this it's like the, the forces have surrounded the green. And so anything that comes and goes, uh, basically drags poa annual on there. So for a long time, I thought that your, your first approach to controlling annual bluegrass on putting greens was to create a clear zone around the greens. And that's where you'd fight your big battle. If you could keep things clean in those areas, you'd have much less inoculum that goes on the putting green. Well, good idea, but I never managed to figure out how to do it. So uh, and today there may be better technology than there was when I was working. Yeah, that's uh, that. It's something that that I'm uh, intrigued by because there's there's things like uh, keeping the the phosphorus low, withholding phosphorus fertilizer, that at you would expect uh, poa annua to have stress from that sooner than uh, 
bent grass would. Bent grass would be more tolerant of it. So you could get stress on bent grass too, but it's going to be more severe and happen sooner on POA. And mm -hmm. the same thing with withholding irrigation, the same thing with keeping your nitrogen low and reducing the, the ability of the plants to grow. Um, it's just can, how much are, what would you call those cultural practices or, uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Just, I call it like the way we manage the grass. If, yeah. if you do those kind of things, are those effective at all? Cause I on lawns, so. they, on lawns they would be, but are they effective on greens? Well, I think they are, you know, I, one of the fellows just, uh, made a note that he got newer cultivars of bent grass. He's moving away from disturbance and he's finding that the, the, the bent grass can compete reasonably well, uh, with, uh, Poanua. And, and I think, uh, that there's a, there's a big historical component here, in, which we've all got to understand. When I started, uh, in the, late 60s, uh, working with turf on golf courses, the standard recommendation for fertilizer, if you can believe it, was a pound of nitrogen per month. That's 12 pounds of nitrogen. You know, that's more than people put on in a lifetime today. Uh, we were largely working with push-up greens. Top dressing was just becoming a thing. And, uh, and then our technology for, for top dressing and for coring was, was pretty antiquated. So uh, a lot of those battles were lost, you know, right there. Uh, we didn't have good disease control measures. So uh, people would routinely lose 15 to 20% of their turf in the winter due to microdochium patch and, and primarily. Um, so, so a lot of these places, the, the, uh, the, the battles were lost, you know, decades ago. Uh, but I think as people have moved into new territory and uh, have become more sophisticated in managing their greens and have, again, found ways to reduce, you know, routine disturbance that, uh, that we've been able to, to get further with bed grass. But um, I would guess that you know, by the time these greens are 80 years old, which many of our old golf courses are in that category, that they, short of being replaced periodically, they will probably become annual bluegrass too. So, kind of a, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, not, it's, it's not an easy, but I think you can, you can definitely extend the life a long time. That's, yeah, I, I think with some of the newer bent grass varieties, the, they, they have more density and they can produce that density at lower nitrogen, I think. So, and they can, they can be cut at lower mowing heights and still maintain that density. Well, so that produces the, the type of putting surface that, that you need to produce. So I think those are all attributes that, that help bent grass be able to persist longer. You know, for a long time, of course, again, you always have to look at the historical part because that's, uh, we don't replant a golf course every year. It, it sort of, you start with where you start and that kind of dictates your future. But, you know, for a long time, we planted uh, highland bed grass on fairways. We planted uh, Pencross uh, in this part of the country on putting greens. And when you think about it, Pencross comes out of Pennsylvania. It's, it's, it's a grass that does well in the summer compared to other things like seaside it it had 
a high nitrogen requirement, or so we thought. Uh, it was coarse textured, so we often did a lot of vertical mowing. If you planted the old Toronto, the C15, before it got sick, um, you know, that was a very aggressive bed grass that had strong stoloniferous growth. Uh, and the only ways to manage that was to really go after it. Um, and then, you know, we moved into the cult of, of, of you know, sand top dressing. And we've, you and I have talked about this before. There's, there's, there's sand top dressing and then there's burying your greens in sand. And so we've, we've gone through a lot of these, uh, uh, not, I won't call them fads, but, but shifts in thinking. Uh, and each one of those has had an impact then on how those grasses performed. So we have superior grasses today. We, we have uh, a, a greater ability to uh, apply smaller quantities of fertilizer. We understand the role that phosphorus plays. Uh, we have better you know, fungicides so we can keep our grass healthier for longer. And then we've got things like rolling, which we never had in the past. All of those allow us to produce a surface without tearing it apart. And uh, so I think we'll, we'll get further. But again, I, I would guess that if many of these golf courses that look like they've managed bent grass really well, um, you know, 50 years from now, we'll probably be annual bluegrass unless they continually replace the sod. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I, I was at my, I mean, I'm just thinking of the contrast between lawns and golf yes. course, low cut turf. My, my brother lives on Orcas Island, um, in, in the San Juans and it was dry there in the summer. I visited, I visited him in August a couple years ago and he, he didn't mow most of his lawn and it just looked like a, a bent grass seed, uh, production. And, yeah. you know, and it's just like, wow, I didn't know there was that much bent grass in your lawn. And then I go there in the summer and it's just, just this beautiful bent grass seed. Uh, yeah. And yet then I'm thinking uh, the golf course on that island, there's a little nine hole golf course, putting greens, 100% POA. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, again, you can never discount the historical part of it because uh, many of those battles were lost. 30, 40 years ago. And uh, so uh, now we just have what we have. And, uh, and I think that's one reason I've always felt that, you know, tell me what you want to grow and I'll work with you on it. But, uh, you know, boy, I'm just fine. It, it, you know, you learn how to maintain it and you generally do so with more rather than less inputs. And, uh, and so it's, uh, I, I've never viewed it as one or the other. I, I think they're both just fine. You know, we've all played on those perfect bent grass greens, but you know, nobody grows poa better than we do in the Northwest. So I think it's just. Yeah, I grew up playing on poa greens, and I'm happy to. Uh, I, I really love putting on on poa greens, and I make a a lot of putts. As those of you who have played with me probably have realized I, I, <laughs> I make a lot of birdies, but, um, yeah, it, I guess what's the problem with POA? I, I, I've, you know, after growing up and going to school in the Pacific Northwest, I've never, I haven't worked there since the late nineties. So, I mean, I guess the problem with POA is microdochium in the wind. I mean, for most of the year and then anthracnose in the summer, Mm -hmm. And 
uh, needs more water and I guess dollar spot maybe. So yeah, it, it's uh, you know it's interesting. I at the GCSA meetings back in uh, I guess we were in Tampa Bay. Uh, we were supposed to have two sessions. One was on how to kill poa annua, and the other one was on how to grow it. And my session, of course, was how to grow it. And I went through all of my details and how to manage a fertility and do all this stuff. And um, every question that anybody had was about killing poanua. And these guys were all from the Midwest and the Northeast. And their problem was they just couldn't keep it alive in the summer. Well, you play a lot of golf in the summer. So that was a big problem for them. They also couldn't keep it alive in the winter because it would get so cold that a lot of times they would have either snowball related issues or, or frost damage. So, um, but when you come out here, we just don't have either one of those. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's incredibly well adapted to our environment, which makes it that much more difficult to try to grow a pure stand of bank grass. You could do that here. You're, you're doing a heck of a job. You you mentioned uh, thinking of the historical reasons, and Jason Haynes brought up some history uh, from the late '90s. Not mm -hmm. not too much history, but that's 15 <laughs> years ago or 20 years ago. Um, 30. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm 30. So uh, suggests it says Nine the USGA consult suggested nitrogen at nine pounds per thousand per year and he says currently he's just over two pounds and it's just right so nine nine pounds per thousand is 450 kilograms per hectare or 45 grams per square meter that's uh that's, that's more than that's more than i'd put on bermuda grass uh in a tropical climate and well, that that also explains BC. why we never heard of anthracnose until mm -hmm. people started to reduce their nitrogen rates because we were growing so much grass. That's also why we had so darn much microdochium. So, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think we have a very astute bunch of superintendents now, more so than in the past. And they're smart enough to figure out how can I dial this down? You know, when you grow less grass, you have to do less things to it up to a point. And, and so, yeah, they kind of figured that out. Jason also made the comment about overseeding, and I think he's right. You, you, if you're going to overseed, you have to do it as part of your ongoing maintenance plan. It's not a one-shot deal. That's 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 a real good comment. Although you can't expect a lot. I mean, it's it's not like I'm going to plant it and everything's going to be hunky dory. You're going to one step forward and one step back sometimes. But uh, yeah, yeah, keep going. I, I, I think he's been putting bent grass in the fairways also, and yeah. uh, maybe on tees, just at really low rates. But at those higher mowing heights, and uh, maybe having the ability to keep it even a little bit drier in those areas than, than yeah, you would on chance. greens, uh, yeah. then the bent grass can can mature and can uh, can form a big part of the sward. I think that. You know, particularly when you get to the east side of the Cascades, uh, what I've observed on greens there, which can stay bent grass for a long time, is that eventually uh, they start having surface sealing problems. And it's it's a combination of, of thatch buildup, um, 
and just natural aging process of, of the grass. And so at some point they, they go into accelerated coring and that's when their transitions occur. And so it's, it's finding a way not to have to do that. Uh, is is the goal. You know, if you go back to the mid-1970s when John Madison, who was at UC Davis at that time, came up with his uh, grand idea to simulate conditions in the British Isles with uh, uh, seaside courses where they top-dressed and that was about all, he came up with this elaborate plan where you would mix everything in your top-dresser, fertilizer, pesticides, take your pick, and uh, that's all you would do is top dress and you would you would try to match the amount of top dressing with the rate of the growth of the grasses and uh boy it sounded like a great idea and um but of course it didn't work because he put too many things in the bucket but out of that has come this notion and i think it's a good one is that if we can dial in our top dressing and our growth rates and manage our growth rates with minimal fertilizer, that ultimately will give us the kind of surface we want and reduce the intensity of the efforts we make, uh, you know, in managing those greens. Um, so, yeah, you just uh, I'm, you know, hope you got good guys working on it. Yeah, I, I, I showing up OM246 hashtag. Uh, which I think relates to what you're saying about getting just the right amount of top dressing. I don't know, Tom, if, if you've uh, read any of my blog posts or, or uh, any of my watched any of my videos about this, but it's a way of testing the organic matter where you don't screen out the thatch. So the, the, the problem, the confusing thing about organic matter testing in the soil, which Basically, we're doing the top dressing to manage the organic matter, mm -hmm. basically. So when you test the organic matter in the soil, the standard definition for, for organic matter in the soil is removing all of the undecomposed plant material first. All the, all the living and dead plant material that's undecomposed gets screened out of the sample Mm -hmm. and discarded and never me gets measured and then you measure the humus that 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 remains but that's not what thatch is and so it, it's been very difficult to track the effect of top dressing from a soil test because you're not getting something that's measuring exactly that and mm -hmm. the om246 test that i've uh people people have been telling me that this type of testing is really effective and i i was happy doing without it until uh i if i finally understood the value that it gave and for the past five years or so i've been doing some research with this and testing with it it's really interesting to check just in the top two centimeters which is the top 0 0.8 inches of of the root zone so that's where a lot of the thatch would be on a on a intensively managed putting green or not even thatch but mat and the organic material and by doing that if that organic matter number stays static over time if if in october 2020 
the number is the same as it is in October 2021. It means that your accumulation rate of organic matter matches your decomposition rate and your removal rate and your dilution rate with the sand top dressing. So you get something, if, if it stays the same, then it means we're putting the right amount of sand, we're, we're, we're doing the right amount of work. If the number's going up, it means maybe you need to put more sand. And if the number's going down, it means mm -hmm. you're reducing organic matter. I, I just find this really useful uh, as a way to gauge the, the effect of the work. Because I think, I think back on when I was a golf course superintendent and I used to put sand but never measure what the effect of it was. And I used to, um, I used to do coring um, just as a matter of habit because I thought the grass needed it, but I wasn't really measuring what the effect of it was in terms of, I was doing it for the purpose of managing organic matter in the soil, but I was never measuring that effect. And I, yeah. I think one of the tools that's really useful now to really precisely gauge for your site, for your grass, for how fast your grass is growing and how fast your grass is accumulating the organic matter to then be able to come back and put just the right amount of sand. I find it very useful to, to measure the organic matter. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting, uh, particularly when you deal with country clubs is, uh, the, because of the intense play and the desires of the membership and so forth and so on, that they begin to dictate what you can and can't do at various times of the year. And I noticed one of the things that used to happen was that they would basically push coring further into the earlier in the spring and later in the fall. And um, so uh, people ended up coring at times when they didn't want to be coring. Uh, they would leave surface open through many months in the winter and in the spring they wouldn't wouldn't recover because it was too cold and so uh, those are additional things that would definitely enhance the likelihood that annual bluegrass would come in so really what i feel like i'm hearing you say and, and i and i think many of the people listening probably understand this is that if you can build your program around optimum timing and constant monitoring that you can kind of get the best of both worlds without you know uh, just uh, blasting away on the basis of a calendar date uh, in terms of uh, coring and other other aspects you know because if, if your greens start to get soft and puffy towards the end of the summer the tendency is to go in and do a lot more verticutting and then load it up with sand and you may have to do that to achieve the speeds that you want, but uh, it also opens up your surface. So if you can manage it as you pointed out, that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I also, <clears throat> yeah, I I also have the idea about being ro reactive rather than proactive. And proactive seems like a good word, and reactive sounds like a bad word. But if we think about being proactive with turf, we never know what the weather's going to be like. Uh, that That's unpredictable. So to be proactive, we have to do a little bit too much. We, 
we we have to err on the side of a little bit too much water, a little bit too much fertilizer, and then we're being proactive to core, proactive to verticut, proactive to manage that with top dressing. We end up doing, even if it's a tiny bit too much, and it's definitely producing really good surfaces, but the long-term effect could be to favor poa annua by, by being proactive. And I think if we sit back and wait for the grass, we can, it's a different way of thinking, but we can be reactive to how the grass is performing in response to the weather. We can end up doing a little bit less irrigation, a little bit less top dressing. And and it's a small difference, but the long-term and the cumulative effect could have some difference in, in what the, the climax species could be. Yeah, I think I think that's that's true. The uh, other part of that equation is, um, you know, un- until recently, at least, uh, our ability to apply water accurately was a limiting factor, and um, we've gotten better at it. But uh, older golf courses, golf courses with older systems, often can't do a very good job of applying water without over applying it and so uh we find that the at the better clubs the clubs with more resources they can actually manage with less water because they have better systems so one of your ongoing goals is to figure out ways uh, to um, improve your system so that you don't inadvertently end up putting a lot more water than you want on Um, some folks don't have much control at all then you go to a golf course that's incredibly well managed and and they've got it dialed in right down to the to the teaspoonful so um yeah i I feel like the the irrigation thing has always been a challenge because uh, if you don't have a great system and you're not able to keep it tuned up you're you're gonna you're gonna be too wet oh my god who are those guys yeah that's uh 12 12 years ago at Tristine Tree Golf Club on a bent grass tee, I think. that. Yeah. You know, I haven't changed at all, but you've gotten older. I know. My my uh, my hair is a lot grayer. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so there's some irrigation. Uh, that's That would be unirrigated rough, I suppose. And I I'm really make a lot of putts, as everybody knows, but sometimes I, I can be hitting out of the rough. So that I think that may have been the last time we played golf together. And I think it was. Yeah, so you you're, that neither you're, one of us are in the fairway. <laughs> yeah, but you were closer to the fairway. Yeah, I was so, on green ground still. <laughs> yeah, so that that was a fun round back in two thousand nine and I uh I hope I will be able to come visit you again sometime soon yeah. and we can have this conversation in, in person. But I, I thank you so much for, for joining me for this office hours. If anybody has any more questions, uh, please put them in the chat and we'll try to answer them before we, we close this out. Um, but I, I, I just find this fascinating. I study this in, in, Thailand and Japan in in this part of the world uh, I I love to look at at which grasses grow because um, I, I'm not going to talk about 
carpet grass and zoysia and Bermuda and paspalum, but you see the same things. I've, uh, I see, uh, the transition happen from one species to the other, depending on, on how it's managed. Well, I'll leave you with a thought. Um, in England, there's a, an estate called Chatsworth, uh, which uh, is the uh, home of the Duke of Devonshire. In, uh, it's in Derbyshire, but it's Devonshire. And um, their lawn is uh, dates back to the 1700s. And it's been continuously maintained uh, without fertilizer and, of course, without water for the most part. And uh, there's a... a an ecologist in England, a guy named Gilbert, who studied that lawn, he found that there was uh, 56 different plant species uh, in that lawn, many of which were woody broadleaf plants, uh, along with many, many grasses. And so uh, it was, it's extraordinary to realize how uh, ecologically compl complex lawns can be. And uh, and, and it sort of goes from no complexity on putting greens to a lot of complexity when you get to the rough system where you and I play. So that's probably why we're so interested in all this. So. Yeah, I, I, I guess, yeah. That What is the name of that estate? Chat, Chatsworth? Uh, Chatsworth, yeah. You can look oh. it up. Uh, in part, there's one large lawn area that is essentially has been in constant cultivation for uh, almost 300 years. Wow, fascinating. Pretty, pretty amazing. I, I will look that up. Yeah, yeah, I I agree with you. the The rough is interesting, and I I like to study low maintenance turf because I under it's easy to understand what what's happening with high maintenance turf. But if we go look at something that doesn't get irrigation, it's fascinating to see what grows. If mm -hmm. if we go look at something that doesn't get mowed. Um, I just had a blog post about zoysia on roadsides in Thailand. All the all the the medians on Thai mm -hmm. highways are sodded with zoysia, but unless it's irrigated and mowed, it it doesn't re remain yeah. zoysia. And so as you drive around, it's it's interesting to see what's growing in these low maintenance areas. So, yeah. All right. Well. Thank you very much, Tom. It's always a yeah, pleasure talking with you. And uh, yeah, I, I, really, I really appreciate this. Thank you so yeah, much. Thanks, thanks for inviting me. And yeah, thanks. Thanks, everybody, for joining us live in the chat. And if you're listening to this recorded, I, I hope you'll enjoy it. And we'll be back another time with another ATC Office Hours. Thank you.